welcome everybody to another episode of the Austin Tech Leaders podcast brought to you by Coltech. This week, I've got the great pleasure of being joined by Alex Lyle. Alex is the CTO at uh, CryptoWire. Surprisingly, when the first conversation, I wasn't aware of this, but Alex is a, a fellow Brit, been over in Austin now, helping build some of the best tech teams around. And yeah, I want to have a conversation with him today about his experiences and, and his time he spent over in Austin. So Alex, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction. Why don't you let's know a bit more about yourself and, you know, the bit what what you're doing at the moment yeah so hi guys my name's alex lyle i'm the cto of cryptowire and cryptowire is android and ios security platform we specialize in helping government agencies and enterprises and devsecops understand the risks associated with mobile phone applications mobile phones themselves and help developers of applications understand the privacy risks and the security risks and stop things like supply chain attacks. And before that, I was the chief architect at a company called Alien Vault, which was acquired by AT&T. And before that, I was at a company called Fortify, which was acquired by HP. Great track record of helping build tech businesses for acquisition. The plan when you joined those businesses, was it like a, a built to sell model or is it this type of thing happened as it grew? I don't think you can really make a company with the idea of selling it, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you really have to focus on the idea of, of going to IPO. I don't know about other companies, but typically the companies I've been at are VC-backed. You know, you have numbers, and the idea is ideally to disrupt a market or create a new market. So, like, Fortify, you know, it's, it's static analysis. It was very new at the time. It was one of the first companies that ever did static analysis. And the idea was to create a new market to sell to with the idea of IPOing. And then the other company, Aimvault, the idea was to disrupt the SIM market with the idea of IPOing. The realistic thing back then is a lot of like larger companies, they would, you know, they see the value in that and they decide it's cheaper to acquire the company than it is to develop the tech themselves. And you really had to, you know, have extraordinarily strong growth year on year to really break into the IPO market. I think that's changed significantly with the advent of SPACs. I think that idea of being able to IPO and not necessarily go straight to sort of like acquisition is much stronger now. And I think that's a good thing, regardless of what the realistic outcomes are going to be. You have to really focus yourself on the idea of you're going for IPO, you're not going for acquisition. And you know, I think it cheapens your brand if it becomes known that you're shopping yourself around to be acquired, so. The journeys that you've been on in the, in the previous businesses, obviously you've been Austin based, you've seen a lot of change and a lot of developments within the Austin tech market. We spoke about it off camera and before. So what is it that's made Austin such a hotbed for tech growth or tech businesses? First, you, re you really need to have a good university, which is pumping out, you know, strong computer engineers, which Austin obviously has. And then, you know, Austin, you know, has been a tech hub for a while. It was much more about the Silicon side of things. You know, AMD's always been headquartered here. And there was, you know, up in West Palmer Lane area and things like that, there was always the, the bigger guys. And you know, Dell was obviously here. Silicon Labs was here. But the software guys, when I really came to Austin, which is you know, six, seven years ago, a lot of it was not so much startup. There were some small startup scenes here, but 
there were a lot of bigger companies here. You know, eBay, mm-hmm. Apple, Microsoft, they had, they had offices here. I think the critical mass that sort of built up was when there are, and, and there were, you know, there was obviously Austin Ventures and there's a few other VC companies in Austin. But when the other VCs sort of started to be more accessible with people being in Austin and companies being in Austin, you know, you know, the sort of unofficial 40 miles from Sand Hill Road sort of like became less of a thing. I think that's really when things started to take off and a lot of startups became more trendy. And then it, it sort of becomes a self-feeding prophecy, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the best way of, of attracting smart people is to have smart people work for you, you know, that, and that's definitely been the case with Austin and it's just gone strength to strength. The other thing is like San Francisco is a great place. I love San Francisco, but the cost of living there, especially as you get a bit older and you know, you maybe have a wife, you have some kids, you know, you look at how much you're paying there, you look at what you can get in Austin, and then you start seeing there's a similar scene there, then that attracts a lot of slightly older guys who people who are sort of looking more of a place to settle down and raise their children. Well, I think that attracts a lot of people as well. Yeah, it's one someone on a previous episode that we were speaking to, one of the guests mentioned that it used to be in times gone by, it still is now obviously, but in times gone by you'd walk into a coffee shop and you can throw like a stone and it would just hit a software engineer when you're in San Francisco and that's more and more becoming the case in Austin. The population is, you know, the demographic of people is a lot more based around, you know, the software engineering tech people because, as you say, the university and the the growth of the businesses and people joining the town because of that, because they're seeing tech startups there. So loads of techies come. Then there's more offshoots of, of startups that come off those businesses because they may work for a business that's been acquired and then they start off their own business or they and get an idea. It's easier to get there. the VC funding because the VC yeah. guys are, are happy with you being in Austin, you know, and, yeah. and it's an easier sell. And then COVID exasperates that, I think, as well. It's weird where I live, there's new families moving in and they're all from California, you know, like, yeah. like they're, they're all from companies, all usually tech companies are all from California. It's been a strange phenomenon. You see a lot of guys moving from the valley to here, so. You mentioned it there, but was it like a very noticeable change or shift once the sort of VC started looking further afield from sort of Silicon Valley and actually once they put their sights on, okay, we're happy for you to be here rather than being around the corner from us. Once that happened, was it a noticeable change quite quickly that these businesses start sprouting up or was it sort of more organic? I think it sort of went on a sort of exponential curve where it sort of started off quite small and then got started building very quickly. I mean, when I first moved to Austin, when we first decided, you know, at Alien Vault not to have an engineering team in the Valley, but to have an engineering team in Austin, we had a, a very small footprint of an office. We thought we'd only have, we had like three people in it. And we thought that office might, you know, have some engineers and stuff and we might grow to like 20 people, 30 people. But, you know, where we were, you know, in San Mateo, that would be the, the main office and the biggest place. And we just noticed within the space of two years, just like, I think 30 or 40% of that San Francisco office moved to Austin, you know, just, really? just moved off. And that office in Austin, even though it wasn't our headquarters, was by far the biggest office. It'd be like 200 people in that, that office. As that happened, there's more people sort of from the valley moved here. I think that's what opened up the VCs because, you know, you know, you're talking to VCs in, in a lot of ways is almost personal relationships. 
you know, and when they see people that they respect and people that they've done business with are moving there, then that becomes a lot more of a, like, less of an ask to have, you know, to put money there. You know, it feels yeah, less of a risk. And I think when that builds a critical mass, then it opens the floodgates. And, it, you know, it helps that some VCs have decided that, you know, that they're going to have offices here as well. I think that helps as well. So... 100% and it just grows on from there as you say once yeah. one person starts doing it the next the next the next and it follows up your journey to Austin or your your career has been really really interesting obviously you've worked for startups that have been acquired and grown but what made you decide Austin as the place that you wanted is it just because where you was working you wanted to come out there and that's where all the team started getting built or did you make a conscious decision that's a great place to be it was actually pure fluke. It didn't really even enter our minds to come to Austin at the time. We were looking at where to put the engineering team. And then a good friend of the company and a good friend of mine, he was just happened to be in Austin. And he, he suggested, look, hey, you know, why don't you come here? Why don't you check it out? Um, and we just had a two-person team in Austin who were sales guys. And so it was a weird thing, though. Like usually, this isn't so much so. This is a, a friend of mine's story, but he's like, you can usually convince anyone to move to San Francisco, but we can never convince anyone who lived in Austin to move to San Francisco, right? And in fact, a friend of ours moved from San Francisco to Austin and wouldn't move back. And so it was interesting because those two sales guys, we just couldn't get them to move. So we decided, well, we want them, so we're going to put a team in, you know, we'll build a sort of small offices there so we came to that offices and we just looked around and it was just an, a really interesting place and then there was ut and it was like well you know this is a place that could have a big impact and so that's why we just started it on that sort of whim that idea that hey you know it has an attraction these people you know you can't seem to move these guys there's a ready engineering pool here that you know you can leverage that's what made that decision, but it's a very organic one. It wasn't. Yeah. It was. It was just through circumstance. Then and then, yeah. You know, it changed so much so quickly. I think that was the other thing. It just once that shift happened for us within three four years, we just started seeing it everywhere. You wouldn't have to explain to people why you're in Austin. When I first moved here, some people were like, "Oh, why are you moving there?" But within three four years, it's like, "Oh, you know, I can see why you're in Austin." Yeah. Like that's not a big deal now. So. That's probably leads me on nicely to the next question I was going to ask is that in terms of your experience, looking at joining businesses, growing them, acquiring them, looking at, and as you mentioned there, there was a group of people here that didn't want to move. So let's be agile. They moved the business there. You've obviously set businesses up or set teams up for success as you are now and you have done in the past. What do you think, how can businesses best do that? I suppose every company is different. But is there a blueprint or certain things that you think, right, if you do this, 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 and this, you're going to tee yourself up for success? Or if you don't do this, this, and this, you're teeing yourself up for failure? There are very different phases to a company. And again, I'm talking more of a company that wants to be VC-backed, wants to sort of go for that hyper-growth phase, right? So first, you've got to be in a market that will support that, you know? Like, yeah. got to make that decision. Is this a lifestyle business? And there's nothing wrong with a lifestyle business, guys. I have a lot of friends who have a lot less stress than I do, who make very nice livings, right? You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But you've got to understand the market you're going into. You know, what is the size of that market, right? And then you've got to really understand that almost 
not really religion, but you've got to be very clear on what you think you can bring to that market, which will disrupt that market. So you've really got to talk to a whole bunch of people and really understand not what their proposed solutions are, but what their pains are. And not just, you know, gripes, but, you know, what are you going to spend money on? Because that's yeah. what you really want to know. And then once you've done that, you know, it's all about building, building, building that MVP, building, building, building. And then, you know, you build these plans and the companies that succeed are the ones who are ready to toss out that plan because I guarantee you, you're wrong, yeah. right? You, you've got to be vehemently focused on the fact that you're right, but you have to re be willing to realize in a moment's notice that you're wrong. And so you have to be incredibly flexible. Like that's the thing you've got to understand. You've got to understand the market. You've got to understand the problem that you're trying to solve. But you've got to understand that, you know, your plans will change. I mean, there's that sort of cliche thing about Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until Mike Tyson hits them. It's very much true in the market as well. It's like everyone has a plan on what, what they think the market will be and what their solution to the problem will be until they actually get in that market and they find out that's not true. And the companies that build those sorts of very elaborate plans and try and stick to them, I see them end up in death marches. And the ones who are much more flexible, you know, who adapt – they tend to do well, you know, and that's sort of like that phase of like getting your first million, getting your first 10 million. And then at some point it becomes less of about sort of like the innovation and saying yes, and more of like, how do you build on that product you have? How do you sort of like, like, you know, productize it, pay down some tech debt, expand it, you know? And so there are different phases, but the first phase is, is have a plan, stick to it, Focus on the feedback and change it when you need to change it. And the changes can be drastic, but you've got to be willing to, to, to switch and chop as you see in the market, especially when you see holes in the market. And for a startup, that's what a startup can do that a big company can't. A big company, too much inertia, they're not going to be flexible. They're not going to innovate the way that you do it. And so don't emulate them. Why would you emulate that type of thing? That works for them because they're a huge company. You're not you need to be innovative, you need to be flexible, you need to push it. And I, I do know a lot of people want to go for, you know, that closed loop, low friction model, and it makes a, a lot of sense. But I think, you know, to get those first 10, 15 customers, you want to be really high touch with those guys. You really want to understand what their problems are. You really want to push for that. So that's like in a nutshell what I would say to those sorts of guys. Is as, as part of that as well, have you seen, and this is something that I've noticed, the people that start it, and get to a certain point and not always the people that can push it on further. Do you have oh, to, yeah, as absolutely. a founder or as like a, as a founder, be prepared to have, I don't know, like the, the modesty, if, if that's the right word, but to be able to say, actually, I've got it to this point. Now that we've started getting the funding or we're looking to grow and, and it's actually now becoming about, a, not just about building the product, bringing the right people in to be able to push the business onto the next level as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the company I was at before, Alienvolt, there was a stage there when there's a lot of money coming in, the executive team changed. At this company I am in, the founder, you know, he's still head of the board. He's, you know, we brought in a new CEO because you've got to recognize it's actually engineering as well and, and other parts of the company. There are definite phases. There's sort of like, yeah. you know, 10 people, everything's, everyone's wearing everyone's hat. 
try and do everything they can to get the company off the ground. Then there's those guys who sort of go from 10 to 100 to 150 people who are very focused on greenfield products. And you see a lot of engineers who are very interested in those sorts of greenfield projects and forging new ground. And then you sort of see the guys who who come on after that who are probably slightly less more risk adverse, want something that's a bit more stable, and are very happy to sort of build on a framework that someone else has built. Obviously, a lot of people focus on founders and a lot of people focus on the, on the C-suite, but you see that as well in the people who are attracted to different parts and different phases of the company. And you have to accept that, you know, there are certain engineers who I've had in, in my group who are fantastic greenfield engineers who will get bored when you've made a success because it's yeah. not, you know, green and they'll move on. And you you accept that. And there are guys who the idea of sitting on a blank sheet of paper, you know, they don't want they don't want that stress. They don't want to have to do that. But they can take something that someone else has built and finesse it and, and take it to that next level, you know, and build on the original ideas. It's all part of that flexibility and that I recognizing what phase you're in and even recognizing yourself what phase of a company your strengths are. I see a lot of people who want to work at the start because, you know, you get to wear a T-shirt, you get to have a nice Mac, you don't have to worry. You know, do you mean it's a more relaxed sort of like lifestyle? It's become a bit of a status symbol. I work at a tech startup yeah. and say you've got the, you know, it's less cool to work at a Dell or something, but actually working in one of those businesses may suit you slightly better because of the it way does. you like to you get some guys who who love the lack of structure, who love the fact that you're always changing and stuff. And I've got guys who are like, no, you know, like they don't like that. And so there's nothing wrong with working in a lifestyle company. There's nothing wrong working with a big enterprise company. You know, they all have their own challenges. And you've got to be true to yourself where you want to be. And, you know, in the startup world, you have to be true to where you think you add the most value and where you're most comfortable. Because life balance is an important thing. You know, like you don't want to be in a job yeah. that you despise because you're in the wrong fit for it. That's like a really good point because in the market as it is at the moment, everyone's looking to hire, every company's looking to build. There's no need for any engineer or any techie to actually be in a role or work at a company that's not suited to them because there's so much out there. But I suppose that one piece of really good advice for engineers on the market or for any person who works in technology or anyone in any field really Find out what best suits you and seek that out because it's cool to work for a startup because you get, as you say, you get to wear T-shirts, you there's beanbags, office dogs or whatever it may be, or you're working remote, probably most people are now. But yeah, don't follow that trend. It, you might be more suited to that. And then that goes the same for founders or people, you know, C-suite of these startups. Don't hire the wrong people to fit in with what you think you need now because the team's going to grow and it might need different skill sets exactly. in the future. Especially with C-suite, like in the, in the beginning, you need a lot of player coaches. There's no point in hiring a chief marketing officer who's used to having 30, 40 people under them when it will be them and one other person, right? So you have to realize what you need when you need it. It would be nice to have someone in your C-suite who can go from a six-person team to like, you know, a thousand-person team. But the truth is they're very rare. Yeah. What you'll probably find is you need that player coach. You need that one who can take it from, you know, 50 people to 100 people or 50 people to 500 people and 500 people to 1,000 people. You know, and it goes as well with, you know, as you pivot in the market when you're talking to salespeople, you know, there are enterprise salespeople. There are people who focus on the sort of like low friction model. You have to understand where their strengths are. 
and understand if you have to pivot, which you know sometimes happens. You know, like you you pick the enterprise model, you realize you want to go down market, you have to realize that maybe that person isn't the best person to fit that. You know, yeah, and that goes as well with you know other parts of like customer success. You know, like there's a difference between someone who runs a customer success team when the average sales price is you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars compared to a customer success team where the average sales pace is $6,000. You know, you have to understand that and you have to embrace that and be willing to change. And that includes yourself if you're a founder, you know, that, that's one of those things you have to recognize, you know, where you want to be. And, you know, every, every founder sort of wants to be the hyper growth model and they want to go for that. And, you know, it, it can be disruptive, especially if you're used to being your own boss you're taking VC money, you know, you're going to eventually have a big board of people, well, you hope you're going to have a big board of people. They're all hyper-successful people, you know. They're all people who have ran very big companies before on that board. And you're answerable to those people, you know, <laughs> like, like, and you'll have numbers that you have to hit, you know. And so if you come from more of a lifestyle type of thing before and you, you're like, oh, I want to take it to that, you have to recognize that fact that you don't have one boss, you go from having no boss to having 12 yeah. bosses, right? Yeah. And that's something you have to wrap your head around and, and be okay with and, and think about when you're doing these types of things. That's something that I always thought about is that you just say you start a business, you've got this idea for a great tech business. There's two points I want to make. I'll make the first one and then there's another thought. You start a tech business, solves a problem, whatever it may be. Like, for instance, so with CryptoWire, we're defending, building defense for government and other businesses around, you know, mobile phone applications. That's a great idea to build that. It's you, you hire a couple of, you get a couple of friends involved. You start building these applications, these products. It gets really good. We could grow this. Everything you do is what you want to do. If you want to work at it at this time, if you want to deliver it, wherever it is, whatever you want to do, that's down to you. All of a sudden, you think, actually, this, this could be a quite a good idea. We could expand this business, but we need to get some funding. You get some funding, all of a sudden, it's not just down to you. You've got people to answer to. So that must have an effect mentally on people because it's like, hang on a minute, I want to work in this way. But you, I've got to come in now and sit down and tell you how we're going about it. And the VCs are the people that, and again, obviously, once you go through the funding rounds, you join someone who has the same ideas of you and someone you can work with. But as it gets bigger, they may have a different idea of where the business is going to go. And then it's not exactly what you want to do. So your, your company becomes something else. If you hit your number, you're a genius. Yeah. Right? So that it, it, all your ideas are sacrosanct. If you hit your numbers, you know, like if you hit your growth targets and all the rest of it, then obviously, you know, like, like you're the golden boy or, you know, the golden goose. That's fine. Um, but you, you have to be cognizant of that fact that you are answerable to them. You know, like, like you sold a vision, you pitched something, you're yeah. like, this is where the market is. This is why I think we'll disrupt it. You know, and you ultimately, you know, the, the, with those quarterly board meetings, you're going to be there. You're going to have your PowerPoint. You have to explain it. And you're going to be explained to a bunch of people who probably have either been in your position or, you know, have been around for so long that they've, you know, the VCs who've been in a bunch of board meetings of far more successful companies than yours and know the questions to ask and all that stuff that you try and do to sort of hide some of the negative stuff, it's not going to work, right? They're going to be, and you have to be ready for that. So, you know, and, you know, some founders struggle. I mean, you know, like, well, I, I'm out of date on, on the statistics, I think, 
I think like one in six VC-backed companies succeed. I'm not sure what the don't go bankrupt. I think is probably a better one. Like if you've got a really good VC, you know, like who really knows what they're doing, I think it's like one in five. And then those numbers get even more depressing. You get from from make over a million to make over 10 million to make over 100 million. It's like one in 10, one in like one in 100 or something. There's it's a difficult thing. thing. You know, so, it's a difficult thing. You have to recognize that stuff and you have to recognize that you're you're talking to people who have been through it, who have survived those odds. And, you know, you're going to be answers for them. But if you hit your numbers, guys, you, yeah. you'll be a, a genius. Don't worry about it, right? They're, they're all back into the hill. That's the other thing as well with VCs. It's great getting a term sheet, but you've got to really feel like you're comfortable. You can work with these people, you know, that you have to be able to work with them. It's not always as well about the amount of money that you get, because it of- might actually in the long run be better to raise a smaller amount because expectation is less in that sense. So the percentage you keep is is more. So that the second time you raise, you get actually more. So rather than getting 50 million the first time, you get 20 and then 30. You, know, and, you have and actually to justify that it, yeah. There are doors that get opened. I mean, a VC has a Rolodex. People will ignore your email, but if you're a VC-backed company, you know, there's a lot more clout to those emails. And, you know, they'll do the SISO dinners. They'll do the, you know, they have that network which you can yeah. leverage, which helps the companies. So, you know, there are a lot of tangible benefits yeah. to having the right VC. And, and, you know, it's not just money. And, you know, in fact, the money, the valuations is important, you know, and, and obviously the money is important, but you've got to understand why you want the money, what you want to do with that money, but also what benefits a VC brings to the table. And there are a lot, you know, like you do see a lot more doors open, especially at bigger companies, if you're with the right VC, you know, they value the VC's opinion. The VC likes you so much, they put X millions of dollars into you. That's a great recommendation. And that does open doors. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's really big positives to it. Otherwise, you know, so many businesses wouldn't be fine for this type of It's just an interesting thought that, you may have because a lot of businesses are like you say you're built to IPO a lot of businesses at start so then, then you know you're, you're going through that but then there will be other companies out there that all of a sudden they might not be as comfortable and that's probably with having someone sitting their numbers but that's just part and parcel of what it is so then that goes hand in hand with what we mentioned earlier around you might not be the best person to run the business at that point so you just love building the tech you go down there and make sure that happens and we'll have someone else who runs a business and has to deal with the business people so it's just about getting the right team one other thing that i wanted to mention you've said about the reason or a big thing about the sales team that moved out to austin didn't want to come back that's surely a really important cog in any startup wheel or any product-based business is having the right sales team because we, everyone talks about the tech, techies, we need to get the right thing. But without the people going out and pushing the product, it's not gonna go as far as it could. You can have a mediocre product and a fantastic sales team and you'll make a shed ton of money. You yeah. can have the best product in the world, right? And a bad sales team and you can go bust. And you see it all the time. There's this idea, especially in tech, that somehow, the best tech wins, it's not true at all. Not in the slightest is that true. The best tech does not always win, right? It doesn't, right? The market dictates it and who can address that market, who can sell to that market wins, right? You've got to think about that, you know, like, you know, and that's the truth there. You see a lot of tech companies that started not really by sales guys, they're started by guys in tech, you know, and there can be, that sort of 
persuasive sort of way, like, oh, well, you know, salespeople, you know, made my teeth itch, you know, I'm not really, but you've really got to be really up on who you're getting in there and who you're using to sell stuff to. And also knowing what market you're addressing and where in the market you're addressing and getting a salesperson who can help you address that side of the market. And being very clear that, you know, you might be wrong there and you might have to move to a different salesperson, right? Who addresses a different part of the market. You know, it happens, it sucks when it does, but that's just the nature of the beast. The tech's very, very important, but the sales guys, you know, are not far behind. You've got to have a sales team and a marketing team who can tell people why that tech is the best tech is incredibly important. Yeah, you see it everywhere. Businesses, as you say, that aren't as strong technically or the product isn't as great, but the market and the branding behind it and the way it's pushed to the market is superior to a business that has maybe superior tech and they grow much faster and they're in everyone's households more so than actually. And then actually. they buy a sale, the other company with a better tech. And, yeah. you know, and it does it. I mean, it happens. It happens all over the shop. You'll be amazed. And that, that marketing thing, that story, being able to resonate, that story, everyone sort of, looks at companies like, well, look at GitHub. They didn't, and it's true, but for everyone who just sort of like yeah. had this disrupting tech, which everyone bought into, and you didn't have to do any marketing sales, you know, that, that would be one in a million, right? The other companies, you need guys to go out there and sell and sell and sell. And you need to have a story that will resonate with people, especially in this market now where everyone's selling everything all the time. You have to have something that stands out. You have to have a marketing team, a sales team, who can make your product stand out. 100%. I think that's that's brilliant advice. And I suppose one of the things we always try to wrap up on is what is the best piece of advice you have received that's sort of taken you through and you've used through your career? It's probably a cliched one, but like I really think the best thing to do is hire people who are smarter than you. I think mean, that's the most useful thing in the world to do. That's not and hard then, for me. <laughs> it's not particularly hard for me as well. If you're worried if I'm the smartest person in the room, it's like, bloody hell, we're in trouble here, lads. Um, <laughs> but like, hire smart people and then give them problems. Don't try and solve problems. Give them the problems. You're, you're hiring people for their brains. I, I never understood this whole thing where, where you see people who hire someone and then sort of like break it down and try and micromanage. No, you, you hired someone because you thought they were super smart. Give them the problem and let them work on the problem and being there to help them, but otherwise get out of the way. And when we do that, you tend to think you see a lot more success. So I, I'm sure I've heard it in various forms from a bunch of people, but it's very true. Hire the smartest people, give them the problems and get out of their way. And then the other one is hold on, to your plan, but listen to the dates from the plan and be ready to toss away the plan and change when the need comes. That's fantastic. Alex, appreciate your time so much. That was such an insightful conversation just about the growth of businesses and the VC side of things. Can't thank you enough. If anyone wanted to get in touch with you or discuss some of the points you've mentioned today, where's the best place for them to reach you? Probably LinkedIn. You can find me on there. And if it's interesting, I'll definitely ping back. So. Perfect. 
Well, look, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. CryptoWise is a brilliant business. You're doing some amazing things there. I suggest anyone who's listening to check it out because, um, yeah, it's a great company. It's definitely going places. Like all the other businesses you work for, Ev. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Patrick, and it's been awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, guys. Bye.